Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm here to introduce an old friend, both of yours and mine, Michael Davis, who's very well known amongst us and even better known outside us, I think, where he is feared for his trenchant writings. And especially also in America, where he is um, also even better known than he is here. His books have, um, I think, entitled him to the, which is now rather um, an uninviting epithet, but he is entitled to be called a theologian, I think you will agree, with his books on the Mass and on the Second Vatican Council. And also, one might add, for his defence, which is not quite out yet, is it the second one, his defence of Archbishop Lefebvre. I know a lot is said about the Archbishop, but it's usually on one side. And Michael, though not um, a supporter myself, I do appreciate Michael's defence of him. At least it is an intellectual defence, not like the attacks that are made on him which are mostly emotional and one might even say ignorant. Before I introduce Michael, I'd just like to make one announcement, and that is that we are trying to build up um, a list of addresses of people who are interested in the forum so that we may circularise them with details of our forthcoming meetings. So if we haven't... Is this the little book, John? That's right. If we haven't your address in this little book, perhaps you would put it down sometime during the evening. Could I pass it to you, John? You can pass it along then. One of the best things, I think, about the title tonight is the fact that it keeps uh, in circulation the expression original sin, which so many people are trying to bury and forget about. So much so that the title is Original Sin, Myth or Dogma. And this is a title which years ago, not so many years either, would have been possibly bordering on the heresy. But now, it's quite um, acceptable because so many of our acceptable clergy and leaders are trying to make out that original sin is not a dogma, not, a, not a, even a fact, but a myth. I'm sure that Michael will put us right on this. So if you're ready, you have your water. Oh, yeah. Before I start, I'd better explain that I hope this won't be more than 40 minutes. John asked me to give a talk of about 40 minutes. And the main object of this is because in Southwark we've been having these talks by Canon McNamara, which apparently people are finding very unorthodox. I was told one of his worst things is the one on original sin. And I believe the next series of talks he gives in Bromley, some people want to question him on it. So really I've put together a lot of facts about original sin here, which when John's got the cassettes done, ought to be able to help those people. But unfortunately you're going to be the guinea pigs and have it inflicted on you tonight. I hope very much it won't last more than 40 minutes. And if I se seem a bit distracted, it's because... Tomorrow we're moving house to Bromley. My wife didn't really believe I was coming tonight. I actually walked out of the door. She said, even you wouldn't do that. <laughs> uh, and just, just before I left, my little, my little boy attempted to throw his bubble gum over the fence into the 
on the railway line and stuck his hand on a spike and came in saying, does anybody want to see my bone? And he had to go off to hospital. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's all been a bit chaotic. <coughs> now, I'd better stand up. For, shall I stand up for the microphone? It's all right like that. Well, the title of my talk, then, is Original Sin, Myth or Dogma. And I'd like to begin it in the year 1858, in the country of France. And the date is March the 25th, the Feast of the Annunciation, known as Lady Day, when England was a Catholic country. The place is Lourdes, an obscure little town on the French side of the Pyrenees, the spectacular range of mountains which separates France from Spain. On the outskirts of the town, at a spot called Massabea, beside the cold, swift-running garve, near an evil-smelling, perpetually smoking refuse dump, a little girl kneels. Her name is Bernadette Subiru. She is 14 years old. Her health is poor. She suffers from chronic asthma. She is regarded as far from intelligent. Her education is minimal and her family poverty-stricken. They live in a disused prison cell known as the cachot. It is cold and dark. Throughout each night she tosses, turns and coughs and coughs on a straw-filled mattress inside those chill stone walls down which the damp perpetually runs. At dawn she rises to work as a shepherdess to contribute a little something to help her family keep body and soul together. Monsieur Soubirou had once been a miller, but now he has no regular work. He considers a few days' casual employment a great blessing. Bernadette is not preoccupied with her pain and her poverty. She counts herself fortunate because there is a chance that she might be allowed to make her first communion. The nuns who teach her have a very poor opinion of her ability, but there is a chance, just a chance, that if she works hard, very hard, she might attain the minimum standard. God is good to her, she feels, very good. On February the 11th that year, she had gone to Massa Bay with her sister Toinette and their friend Jean Abadie. They went together firewood, and while there, said Bernadette, a lady appeared to her. The lady wore a long white dress with a blue sash, and over her head a veil. On each foot, Bernadette explained later, was a golden rose, and in her hands, a white rosary. This was the first of a series of apparitions. On the 27th of February, the lady said that Bernadette should go to the priests and tell them to build a chapel at Massabea. Bernadette went to her parish priest, Father Peramal, and informed him of this command. Father Peramal wasn't impressed. He suggested, with, I am sure, no little degree of sarcasm, that Bernadette should ask the lady whether she would arrange finance for the chapel, and whether, since she wished him to undertake so ambitious a, a venture, she might care to let him know her name. Thus, on March the 25th, 1858, Bernadette kneels before the grotto at Massabea. The beautiful lady appears once more, and the little girl asks her her name. I am the Immaculate Conception, she replies. Bernadette has never heard these words before. As far as she is concerned, they might have been in Latin, or even in Chinese. Bernadette is a humble and docile little girl. She does not ask for an explanation. She runs to the presbytery. She runs to Father Peramal to give him the lady's reply. She coughs as she runs. It seems that her lungs will burst, but she does not think of her pain or her discomfort. 
Along the road, over the bridge, through the village, her mind is filled with two words, and two words only, immaculate conception. She repeats them to herself again and again and again. She is terrified that she will forget them, and if she does, how can she face Father Peramal, let alone the lady? Well, she does reach the priest. She tells him what the lady has said, and his attitude to her changes. How could a girl like Bernadette have heard this expression? If, by some remote chance, she had done so, why would she have used it if she were attempting to gain celebrity by pretending that Our Lady had appeared to her? Only four years before, on December the 8th, 1854, Pope Pius IX had defined infallibly and irrevocably the dogma of the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary. The dogma had not been accepted with universal acclamation. There were those who did not find it acceptable. They were, in general, men of great intelligence and great erudition. They knew better than the Vicar of Christ, the successor of St. Peter, the visible head of the Church upon earth, for they were scholars. Could it be that Our Lady had decided to confound these learned men and appear on earth herself to assure us that the Vicar of her Son was correct in teaching that her Immaculate Conception was a truth belonging to the divine revelation committed by our Lord to his apostles. If this was so, what a strange place to appear, and what an inappropriate person to choose as the recipient of her message. Who would believe this scarcely literate peasant girl, and how would a message delivered in Lord become known throughout the world when the name of the little town was unknown to the majority of Frenchmen? But then, who would have imagined that God would save the world by becoming incarnate in the womb of a poor Jewish girl in Nazareth, or being born in a stable in Bethlehem to be adored by shepherds? Well, when Bernadette told Father Peramel what the lady had said, that she was the Immaculate Conception, he began to believe her, and within decades so did the whole Catholic world. Once again God had used the humble to confound the great, and what was it that Pope Pius IX had defined on December the 8th, 1854? Here is the key passage from his bull in Ephabilis Deus. We pronounce, declare, and define unto the glory of the holy and indivisible Trinity, the honor and ornament of the Holy Virgin, the Mother of God, for the exaltation of the Catholic faith and the increase of the Christian religion by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the blessed apostles Peter and Paul, and in our own authority, that the doctrine which holds the blessed Virgin Mary to have been, from the first moment of her conception, by a singular grace and privilege of Almighty God, in view of the merits of Jesus, the Saviour of mankind, preserved free from all stain of original sin, was revealed by God, and is therefore to be firmly and constantly believed by all the faithful. Tota pulcra is Maria, et macula originalis non est in te. These words from the office for the Feast of the Immaculate Conception must surely bring joy to the heart of everyone who loves our Saviour and his Virgin Mother. Thou art all fair, O Mary, and the stain of original sin is not found in thee. The Mass and the office of this day are replete with inspired praise for the Mother of God. Thou art the glory of Jerusalem, thou art the joy of Israel. Thou art the honour of our people. Blessed art thou, O Virgin Mary, by the Lord, the Most High God, above all the women on earth. Today is the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary, 
who with her virginal foot crushed the head of the serpent. Alas, there are many claiming to be Catholic today who could not say these words with conviction. These men do not accept the infallible definition of Pope Pius IX, which obliges us to believe that Our Lady was preserved free from all stain of original sin. They cannot believe that the Lady said to St. Bernadette, I am the Immaculate Conception, because where they are concerned such a statement would be meaningless. These men and women, the women mostly being nuns, do not claim that Our Lady was conceived in a state of original sin, far from it. No, they do not believe in the doctrine of original sin as taught by the Church. Where they are concerned, everyone is immaculately conceived. There is no sin but personal sin. And it therefore follows that when Pope Pius IX declared Our Lady to have been freed from something which is non-existent, the conception of Our Lady was no more and no less immaculate than that of King Herod, Martin Luther, or Henry VIII. If those who deny the traditional teaching are correct, if the dogma of original sin which is proposed to us by the Church as divinely revealed is no more than a myth which we must discard now that Catholics have come of age, to quote a favourite phrase of the progressives, then we might as well discard the whole of Catholicism. If the Church commits her infallible authority to a doctrine which has no basis in objective reality, then how can we believe in anything she teaches? Ah, we might be told by a proponent of contemporary catechetics, but traditional teacher on any aspect of the faith must now be considered in the light of Vatican II. Fair enough. There is an insight of Vatican II concerning the Immaculate Conception of Our Lady in Lumen Gentium, the dogmatic constitution on the Church. It affirms the traditional teaching in terms that are clear and inspiring. Finally, Preserved free from all guilt of original sin, the Immaculate Virgin was taken up, body and soul, into heavenly glory upon the completion of her earthly sojourn. She was exalted by the Lord as Queen of all, in order that she might be the more thoroughly conformed to her Son, the Lord of Lords, and the conqueror of sin and death. In this constitution, Our Lady is presented in her traditional role of the Second Eve, just as her Son is the Second Adam. The February 1983 issue of Father Paul Crane's excellent periodical, Christian Order, contains an article by Monsignor Eugene Cavain, a member of the Pontifical Academy of Theology in Rome. Monsignor Cavain comments, It might be emphasized here that a standard indicator of the heterodox or modernist movement is a strained resistance to the revealed doctrine of original sin. Persons who evaluate catechetical literature should be specially alert for this aberration. For, if our first parents did not fall into original sin and leave us with that proneness to sin which marks our own natures, why bother to teach about redemption? Why be concerned about the sacrifice of the New Testament? What need of a redeemer? The pieces of the contemporary puzzle fall readily into place. Monsignor Cavain is correct. <coughs> The contemporary puzzle to which he refers concerns the religious education of Catholic children and adults, for that matter, now known as catechetics. And the puzzle posed by contemporary catechetics is that, to quote Monsignor Cavain again, how have we Catholics come to produce a generation of religious illiterates? Strong words, but amply justified. Catholic schools today are, in general, producing a generation of religious illiterates. 
In all too many cases, a so-called Catholic school presents a danger to the faith of the Catholic child. If he emerges from his school as a, as a religiously illiterate Catholic, he is one of the lucky ones. Those who are not so lucky will have had their faith destroyed. In his article, Monsignor Cavain quotes Cardinal Ratzinger, now prefect of the Sacred Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. Cardinal Ratzinger does not speak of a puzzle, he speaks of decadence. No one can deny that, in the last ten, that the last ten years have been harmful to the Church. Instead of the promised renewal, they have given us a process of decadence, which to a large extent began in the name of the Council and has done nothing but discredit the Council itself. We can therefore affirm that there will be no renewal until there is a change of course and an abandonment of the errors adopted after the Council. The errors to which Cardinal Ratzinger refers were not something new which emerged after the Council. Most of them, as I will show, had been condemned formally by the Council of Trent. Adam was created in what is known as a state of original justice, blessed with a gift of sanctifying grace, a share in the divine life of his Creator. He was thus truly made in the image of God. This gift of sanctifying grace, together with the other qualities of original justice, integrity and immortality belonged to his nature. They would have been transmitted to all his descendants had he not sinned, but sin he did. St. Thomas Aquinas, following St. Augustine, tells us that it was the sin of pride, a desire to gain likeness to God, not in being which he had, but in knowledge. His nature was transformed by this sin. Deformed would be a more accurate expression, and it is this tainted nature which is received by his descendants. At the moment of conception, the physical body received from our parents is united with a soul infused by God, but, as St. Augustine has explained, it is a soul void of grace to which it has no right, infused into a vessel already defiled, and, without the aid of divine grace, even in its mother's womb the child becomes the prey of Satan. The mother brings forth her blighted child in pain and anguish. Its first accents are cries and weepings, for it is a child of wrath, and the voice of God exclaims upon it, What is born of flesh is flesh, you must be born again. You must be born again. The mercy of God is infinite and transcends our comprehension. In the liturgy of Holy Saturday, the sin of Adam is called a happy fault, felix culpa because it merited so great a redeemer. The word redeem means to buy back that which was lost, and Christ our redeemer paid the price of our sins by shedding his precious blood for us upon the cross. You must be born again. We can be born again, born again of water and the Holy Ghost. In our baptism we die with Christ the second Adam and rise from death with him, rise from the spiritual death in which we are conceived and cleansed of all sin, through his blood shed for us in sacrifice. We share as Adam did in God's own life. The baptized Christian has been justified, justified through the merits of Jesus Christ, and, as Cardinal Newman explained it, the great benefit of justification is this. One thing, the transference of the soul from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Christ. But we have not returned to the status quo which prevailed before the fall, we are not immortal, and we have lost the gift of integrity, that is, body and soul are no longer in complete harmony. 
The soul is indeed delivered from the power of Satan by the blessed waters of baptism. The baptized person is a Christian, bears a Christian name, is a temple of the Holy Ghost and an heir to eternal life, though liable to reject that inheritance by serious and unrepented personal sin. But the scars left upon his nature by the primal wound of Adam are deep indeed. The grace of Christ holds possession of the soul, but the body bears the penalties of Adam's sin in every mortal sense and vein and fibre. It agitates the soul with its passions, it sways her with its fickleness, it blinds her with its lusts, it torments her with its petulance, it worries her with its incessant wants and cravings, it urges her to all manner of selfishness and pride, and thus that man whom God designed to be spiritual in the flesh is ever inclining to be carnal in the mind. In baptism we receive the gift of sanctifying grace. Throughout our lives God will always give us the actual grace we need to overcome temptations or to repent of our falls into sin, providing we make a sincere effort to be virtuous and make use of the helps offered to us by the church, particularly the grace of the sacraments. But if we are lukewarm in our desire for grace, if we do not fight the evil inclinations of our weakened nature, our soul will be seduced by Satan. It will return to the captivity from which it was redeemed by baptism. The soul will become once more the victim of the flesh, the slave of Satan, and, as St. Paul expresses it, the carnal man cannot see the things which are of the Spirit of God. The great apostle was the first to recognize his own weakness. When we are inclined to despair of overcoming our own sinfulness, we should recollect that an inclination to sin is part of the human condition. And if St. Paul, who is converted by an act of exceptional and blinding grace, was not exempted from the struggle between nature and grace, what right have we to have to expect such a privilege? The greatest of saints have undergone the dark night of the soul, and the nearer we approach to the ideal of the Christian life, the more fiercely will Satan assault us. I know, says St. Paul, that there dwelleth not in me, that is to say, in my flesh, that which is good. For to will is present with me, but to accomplish that which is good I find not. For the good which I will, I do not, but the evil which I will not, that I do. I find then a law, that when I have a will to do good, evil is present with me. But, as we are taught in, in the infallible definition of Pope Pius IX, not for even the briefest instant was the soul of the mother of God tainted with original sin. Her son was, a, was her saviour, as he is ours, but he exercised his greatest power by preserving her from original sin. And if, as our Lord said to Simon, more love is owing where more has been forgiven, Mary was bound in more to love Jesus, as she had received from his hands the greatest of forgivenesses and the greatest of redemptions. Mary is, of course, the woman spoken of in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmities between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. She shall crush thy head, and thou shalt lie in wait for her heel. The fathers of the church delighted to depict Mary as the second Eve. She resembles Eve in all that concerns innocence while she is the contrast of Eve in all that concerns sin. The fathers compare the original innocence and purity of Mary with the original innocence and purity of Eve. 
They show that Adam was formed of the earth while it was yet virginal and immaculate, before human blood had flowed upon it, before crime had defiled it, before man had even broken or compressed it with, its, with his labor, before it had opened for the burial of man. They then show that Christ was formed from an origin no less pure, no less virgin, no less immaculate than the earth from which Adam was made. They also point out how Eve lost all things for us by the free action and choice of her will, and how Mary gained all things for us by the free choice and submission of her will. Hence they set the faith of Mary against the infidelity of Eve, and the obedience of Mary against the rebellion of Eve, and the innocence and perpetual immaculate purity of Mary against the sin and defilement of Eve. They lay particular stress upon the necessity of Mary consenting freely to become the mother of God's Son. It was upon this free consent that our salvation depended. Listen to St. Arrhenius. As Eve became by her disobedience the cause of death to herself and to the entire human race, so Mary, who though a virgin had yet a predestined husband, was by her obedience made the cause of salvation to herself and the entire human race. Thus, the knot of Eve's disobedience was untied through Mary's obedience. For what the Virgin Eve tied fast by unbelief, that the Virgin Mary untied by faith. The teaching of the Church on original sin and the Immaculate Conception is covered by the guarantee given by our Lord to his Apostles, He who hears you hears me. To accept what the Church teaches is to accept the teaching is to accept Christ. To reject the teaching of the Church is to reject Christ. The fact that some who claim to be Catholics reject the dogma of original sin must, ironically, be explained as a consequence of that sin itself. Their attitude is basically a manifestation of pride. This is a fact which was noted by Pope Pius XII in his encyclical Humani Generis, the 12th of August 1950. In this encyclical, he exposed some of the more serious deviations from orthodoxy discernible in the Church at that time. I have already quoted Cardinal Ratzinger on the doctrinal decadence which has followed the Second Vatican Council, but the errors which followed the Council were in existence long before it had been convoked by Pope John XXIII. Pope Pius XII was able to restrict the spread of these errors. They were confined largely to scholarly circles, but since the Council... They have spread like a malignant virus throughout every level of the church, even into the education of our youngest children. Pope Pius XII begins Humani Generis by expressing his regret that the judgments of mankind in the sphere of religion and morals should be so variable and so apt to stray from the truth. <coughs> there is no more apt or horrifying confirmation of the Pope's judgment than the abortion holocaust. In 1950, when this encyclical was written, abortion was a criminal offence in Western countries. It was abhorred not simply by religious people, Catholics, Protestants and Jews, but by most people of little belief or none. But within 30 years, the consensus of opinion has changed so radically that it is now opposition to abortion which is considered an aberrant and eccentric view. Most Western countries have now passed legislation giving mothers the legal right to murder their unborn children. In 1950, a doctor who performed an abortion would be struck off the register. In many hospitals today, there is no future for a doctor who finds the murder of the unborn repugnant. 
the judgments of mankind are indeed variable and liable to stray from the truth. Pope Pius then went on to note with regret that that such disagreement, such false tendency should always have been common outside the Christian fold is no matter of astonishment. He adds sadly that these false tendencies have now found adherence within the church itself. Perhaps they are afraid of seeming uninformed about the progress which science has made in our day. At any rate, they are eager to emancipate themselves from authority, and the danger is that they will lose touch by insensible degrees with the truth divinely revealed to us, leading others besides themselves into error. The Pope characterized the basic error of theologians who refused to subject themselves to authority as that of dogmatic relativism. Dogma is a truth which the Church teaches us has been immediately revealed by God. We may not understand it, but if we wish to call ourselves Catholics, we must believe it. These truths are absolute. They cannot be modified, but they can sometimes be explained more clearly. Theologians who believe dogmatic truth to be relative often propose radical changes in the meaning of truths to which the Church has committed her authority irrevocably. Some, explained Pope Pius XII, are for whittling away the meaning of doctrines to the utmost possible limit. Dogmas must be disentangled from the forms of expression which have so long been accepted. The theologians the Pope is con <coughs> condemning here are rightly termed neo-modernists, for they are doing exactly what the modernists condemned by Pope St. Pius X attempted. They first claim that they are presenting traditional dogmas in contemporary language, but then proceed to change the meaning of the dogmas themselves. The Pope accepted that it is possible to explain dogmas more clearly, that these dogmas can be traced back to their sources, and that doing so is the noblest office of theology. But he quotes his predecessor, Pope Pius IX, the effect that the meaning of dogmas must always be that in which they have been defined by the Church. In some cases, the formulas in which dogmas have been expressed have become so closely identified with the dogmas themselves that it would be unthinkable to modify them. These traditional formulas cannot, Pope Pius XII insisted, without impiety be abandoned. This is particularly true when they have, he states, been used and hallowed in their use by the general councils. Pope Pius explains in some detail why this is so. So numerous they are, and so important these theological concepts, which have been hammered out and polished with the utmost care, in order to express with ever-increasing accuracy the truths in which we believe. It is a process that has often cost centuries of labor, carried out by men of no common intellectual attainments, under the watchful eye of authority, with a light and leading to from the Holy Spirit. Must they now fall into disuse, be cast aside, be robbed of all their meaning? Are we to substitute for them guesswork of our own, vague and impermanent fashions of speech, borrowed from our up-to-date philosophies, which today live and will feed the oven tomorrow, that were indeed the height of impudence. The whole of dogma would thus become no better than a reed shaken by the wind. Pope Pius XII considered one of the most insidious influences upon some contemporary theologians to be the theory of evolution, as it is called, a theory which has not yet been proved beyond contradiction, even in the sphere of natural science. 
Some theologians, he complained, accept this theory without caution, without reservation. They thus become imbued with false evolutionary notions, with their denial of all that is absolute or fixed or abiding in their human experience. Such notions have paved the way for a new philosophy of error. The Pope did not forbid Catholics to investigate or even to accept as a working hypothesis the possibility of the evolution of the human body. Thus, the teaching of the Church leaves the doctrine of evolution an open question as long as it confines its speculations to the development from other living matter already in existence of the human body, that souls are immediately created by God is a view which the Catholic faith imposes on us. In the present state of scientific and theological opinion, he continued, this question may be legitimately canvassed by research and by discussion between those who are expert in both subjects. But Pope Pius is adamant that certain inferences based upon the theory of evolution are totally incompatible with the faith because they cannot possibly be reconciled with the teaching of the Church upon original sin. Those who accept the theory of, theory of evolution must take one of two positions, monogenism or polygenism. Monogenism is the belief that the entire human race descended from one human pair, which evolved from lower forms of life. Polygenism is the belief that more than one human pair evolved in different places at different times, and that mankind today is descended from these different couples. The Pope insists that such theories leave the faithful no such freedom of debate. Christians, he stated, cannot lend their support to a theory which involves the existence, after Adam's time, of some earthly race of men, truly so-called, who are not descended ultimately from him, or else supposes that Adam was the name given to some group of our primordial ancestors. It does not appear how such views can be reconciled with the doctrine of original sin, as this is guaranteed to us by scripture and tradition, and proposed to us by the church. Original sin is the result of a sin committed in actual historical fact by an individual man named Adam, and it is a quality native to all of us only because it has been handed down by descent from him. Pope Pius has quoted here the teaching of the Council of Trent, when it, which, in its turn, had quoted and declared the sense in which chapter 5 of St. Paul's Epistle to the Romans must be interpreted. The essential teaching of this chapter is, 1. As by one man sin entered into the world, and by sin death. 2. As by the offence of one the judgment came unto all men to condemnation. 3. As by the disobedience of one man the many were made sinners. 4. Even so, by the justice of one, the free gift came unto all men to justification of life. And five, even so, by the obedience of one, shall the many be made just. Before examining the teaching of Trent in more detail, mention must be made of the principal error concerning original sin which is circulating today. In the Gospel of St. John we find an expression, the sin of the world which is used to indicate the multitude of sins committed by men. This sin has a collective dimension. Sin is infectious. One man can spread the contagion to another. He can pass on the evil. 
It is terrifying even to contemplate the accumulation of sin in the world since the sin of Adam. And it is into this sinful environment that we are all born. How can we fail to be affected by the sin of the world? Our problem is, as St. John tells us, to be in the world, but not of the world. There is an evident connection between original sin and the sin of the world, because having lost our original integrity, we are weakened in our capacity to resist evil. We can, in fact, resist it only with the help of divine grace. The Second Vatican Council recalls that God did not abandon men after they had fallen in Adam, but ceaselessly offered them helps to salvation in anticipation of Christ the Redeemer. The grave error concerning original sin to which I have just referred is to identify original sin with the sin of the world. When a child reaches the age of reason and commits his first deliberate sin under the influence of his sinful environment, he has become tainted with the sin of the world. But obviously, if there is no original sin, until this happened, he was sinless. He had been conceived immaculate. Baptism could not, therefore, have been instrumental in removing any taint of Adam's sin sin from him. It could not have been the sacrament of regeneration, and, when conferred upon an infant, signified no more than his reception into the Christian community. This error was propagated and popularized by the notorious Dutch Catechism. It was diffused widely in Britain through a book by Father Peter de Rosa entitled Christ and Original Sin. This book and the Dutch Catechism are cited as recommended reading in an official religious education syllabus for the Archdiocese of Liverpool, which I have here, and the teaching in this syllabus is clearly derived from these heretical texts. Like many of his ill, Father de Rosa left the priesthood and married. The existence of the sin of the world has, as I have shown, a sound biblical basis and is in any case self-evident to anyone with eyes to see and ears to hear. It is incurred by imitation. The error of the Dutch Catechism is to identify original sin with the sin of the world, meaning that original sin is contracted through imitation. This very error was anathematized by the Council of Trent, which teaches that original sin is incurred not by imitation, but by propagation. In other words, it is handed down from parent to child in all who are descended from Adam. The essential teaching of Trent is contained in the four canons anathematizing those who refuse to accept the teaching of the council. The anathemas of general councils are infallible and irreformable. Canon 1 lists the penalties which Adam incurred personally for his sin. Canon 2 anathematizes those who deny that the sin of Adam injured himself alone and not his posterity. Canon 3 teaches that the sin of Adam is transfused into all by propagation, not by imitation, and that it is taken away only by the merit of Jesus Christ, applied both to adults and infants by the sacrament of baptism, rightly administered in the form of the church. Canon 4 is so crucial that a longer extract must be quoted. That that which the apostle has said, by one man sin entered into this world, and by sin death, and so death passed upon all men, in whom all have sinned, is not to be understood otherwise, than as the Catholic Church spread everywhere hath always understood it. For by reason of this rule of faith, from a tradition of the apostles, 
even infants, who could not as yet commit any sin of themselves, are for this cause truly baptized for the remission of sins, that in them may be cleansed away by, ge by regeneration, which they have contracted by generation. For, unless a man be born again of water and the Holy Ghost, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Even where the teaching of Trent is not openly denied by official spokesmen for the church in English-speaking countries today, it will really be affirmed. If the teaching of Trent is repudiated on such a scale, might there not be at least something in what its critics say? Might not the mind of the church have developed? After all, since Trent we have had Vatican Council too, and Pope Pius XII has been followed by Popes John XXIII, Pope Paul VI, and Pope John Paul II. The short and correct answer is that the teaching of the Council of Trent, reiterated by Pope Pius XII and Humani Generis, has not been modified in any way whatsoever by Vatican II or by the pontiffs who have succeeded Pope Pius XII. Where they have referred to the Tridentine teaching on original sin, it has been to reiterate it yet again. Those who claim that there has been any modification of the traditional teaching should be asked to quote a single statement of the magisterium to endorse their view. They will not be able to do this. All they will be able to do is cite the opinions of one or more aberrant theologians. The duty of a faithful Catholic is to embrace the official teaching of the Church, and this is represented by the teaching of the magisterium. No matter how many theologians dissent in the face of a clearly defined teaching of the magisterium on a matter of faith or morals, their opinion carries no weight whatsoever. The number of theologians who rejected the teaching of Humanae Vitae is probably beyond counting, but it is Humanae Vitae which represents the official teaching of the Church. The Magisterium has by no means been silent on the subject of original sin since the pontificate of Pope Pius XII. There are several references in the Council of Documents which conform perfectly to the traditional teaching. In 1965, Pope Paul VI warned in his encyclical Mysterium Fidei, issued shortly before the close of the Council, that it would be intolerable to attempt to replace the dogmatic formulas of the Council of Trent, and added that where a clearer or more obvious exposition of these formulas might be possible, it must be with the same meaning as that with which they were employed. This enables the unalterable truth of faith to survive as progress is made in the understanding of faith. The First Vatican Council has taught in the case of sacred dogmas that that meaning must always be retained, which Holy Mother Church once declared, there must never be any retreat from that meaning on the pretext and title of higher understanding. Pope Paul VI returned to the same theme three years later in his credo of the 30th of June 1968. We even see, he wrote, Catholics possessed by what is almost a passion for change and novelty, the Church certainly regards it as her duty never to relax in her efforts to penetrate more deeply the hidden mysteries of God, from which all derive the myriad fruits of salvation, and in like manner to express them to succeeding generations in a way progressively adapted to contemporary understanding, but 
At the same time, the greatest care must be taken that the important duty of research does not involve the undermining of the truths of Catholic doctrine. If this happens, and we have unfortunately seen it happen in these days, the result is perplexity and confusion in the minds of many of the faithful. The Pope's object in issuing his credo was to remove all such confusion concerning the basic doctrines of the faith. Prominent among the doctrines he referred to in his credo is that of original sin. And he reiterated the teaching of the Council of Trent in almost identical terms. In an address given two years earlier in July 1966, Pope Paul had warned that it is evident that the explanations of original sin given by some modern authors are irreconcilable with true Catholic doctrine. Starting from the undemonstrated premise of polygenism, they deny more or less clearly that the sin committed at the beginning of history from which so many cesspools of evil have come to mankind was first of all the disobedience of Adam, the first man. The traditional teaching on original sin was reiterated yet again in the General Catechetical Directory published by the Sacred Congregation for the Clergy and approved by Pope Paul VI in 1971. Chapter 2 is devoted to the basic truths of our faith which would form the basis of any religious education program for children or adults. It reiterates the traditional teaching that baptism cleanses man from original sin and from all personal sins, gives him rebirth as a child of God, incorporates him into the church, sanctifies him with the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and impressing on his soul an indelible character, initiates him into Christ's priestly, prophetic, and kingly roles. It is therefore absolutely certain that the teaching of the Council of Trent on original sin has not received the slightest modification during the post-war era in any official statement of the magisterium. Indeed, as I have stated several times already, it cannot ever be modified without dealing a death blow to the credibility of the Church. The Tridentine teaching was forcefully reiterated by Pope Pius XII. It received the full and tranquil adherence of Vatican II in its entirety and preciseness, it was reiterated yet again using the language of Trent itself by Pope Paul VI in his credo. It was listed first among the effects of baptism in the General Catechetical Directory. In 1968, the Commission of Cardinals appointed by Pope Paul VI to examine the Dutch Catechism published a critique of this compendium of heresy. Their critique provides a valuable restatement of official church teaching. Among the corrections they commanded should be made was a lengthy exposition of the meaning of original sin. It is well worth reading in full, but I will content myself with quoting the opening passage. Man in the beginning rebelled against God, and so lost for himself and his offspring that sanctity and justice in which he had been constituted, and handed on a true state of sin to all through the propagation of human nature. Certainly those expressions must be avoided which could signify that original sin is contracted only by individual new members of the human family in this sense, that from their very coming into the world, they are exposed within themselves to the influence of human society, 
where sin reigns, and so are started initially on the way to sin. The cardinals of the commission referred to the Vatican II Constitution, Gaudium et Spes, sections 13 and 22, regarding the rebellion of Adam. <coughs> Is there perhaps a crumb of comfort in the pontificate of Pope John Paul II for those who deny or try to gloss over this fundamental teaching? Far from it. In his apostolic exhortation, Catechesi Tridende, the 16th of October 1979, he expressed the same fears as his predecessors, Pope Pius XII and Pope Paul VI, concerning the extent to which Catholic theologians had been infected with unorthodox ideas. Clearly, the situation has worsened considerably, perhaps catastrophically, since the pontificate of Pope Pius XII. And this is made quite clear by the alarm Pope John Paul II expresses at the extent to which heterodox ideas are affecting the catechetical instruction given to young Catholics. With regard to the content of catechesis, the Pope writes, three important points deserve attention today. The first point concerns the integrity of the content. The person who becomes a disciple of Christ has the right to receive the word of faith, not in mutilated, falsified, or diminished form, but whole and entire, in all its rigor and vigor. What kind of catechesis would it be that failed to give their full place to man's creation and sin, to God's plan of redemption and its long loving preparation and realization, to the incarnation of the Son of God, to Mary, the Immaculate One, the Mother of God, ever virgin, raised body and soul to the glory of heaven, and to her role in the mystery of salvation, to the mystery of lawlessness at work in our lives and the power of God freeing us from it, to the need for penance and asceticism, to the sacramental and liturgical actions, to the reality of the Eucharistic presence, to participation in divine life here and hereafter, and so on. Thus, no true catechist can lawfully, on his own initiative, make a selection of what he considers important in the deposit of faith as opposed to what he considers unimportant, so as to teach one and reject the other. As if to hammer the final nail into the coffee of the contemporary catechist who rejects the teaching of Trent on original sin and other fundamental dogmas, Pope John Paul II states that catechetical tests must take their inspiration as closely as possible from the general catechetical directory, which remains the standard of reference. He also recommends one other text. In the creed of the people of God, proclaimed at the close of the 19th centenary of the martyrdom of the apostles of Peter and Paul, my predecessor, Paul VI, decided to bring together the essential elements of the Catholic faith, especially those that presented greater difficulty or risk being ignored. This is a sure point of reference for the content of catechesis. This brings me to what, to the best of my knowledge, is the last official pronouncement of the Magisterium upon the dogma of original sin. The most evident consequence of the de denial of this dogma is that infant baptism is not an urgent necessity. If there is no original sin, babies who die will go straight to heaven. Opposition to infant baptism within the Church has now become so widespread 
that on the 20th of October 1980, Pope John Paul II approved an instruction of the Sacred Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith on this subject. This instruction includes a very valuable synopsis of the teaching of the Magisterium, identical to that which I have presented to you tonight. Before concluding, I must remind you once more of the significance of the dogma of the Immaculate Conception in any discussion of original sin. No theologian who makes even a pretense of being a Catholic can deny the doctrine of papal infallibility. But there is a difference of opinion among theologians as to when popes have spoken infallibly, with the exception of two dogmas, those of the Immaculate Conception and the Assumption. In both cases, the entire weight of papal authority, the entire credibility of the Church have been involved. In the ball in Ephabilis Deus of the 8th of December 1854, Pope Pius IX committed the Church irrevocably to belief in the dogma of the Immaculate Conception. After defining the dogma in the terms which I cited earlier, Pope Pius IX continued, Therefore, if some should presume to think in their hearts otherwise than we have defined, which God forbid, they shall know and thoroughly understand that they are by their own judgment condemned, have made shipwreck concerning the faith, and have fallen away from the unity of the church, and moreover, that they by this very act subject themselves to the penalties ordained by law, if by word or writing or any other external means they dare to signify what they think in their hearts. If original sin is no more than a pervasive influence within human society, which we contract by imitation, and it is not something inherited by each one of us through direct descent from Adam, then not one of us was stained with original sin at the moment of our conception. We did not incur it until we fell under the influence of the sin of the world. And, therefore, as I explained at the beginning of my talk, Pope Pius IX used his infallible authority to proclaim that Our Lady was conceived free from a phantom sin, a sin that has affected no one but Adam, that is, if they believe in Adam as an actual historical person, which most of them do not. Let me repeat, if the teaching of Trent on original sin and the definition of Pope Pius IX on the Immaculate Conception can no longer be considered tenable, then neither can the claim of the Church to teach with infallible authority. In fact, it would lose all claim to be a divinely founded institution, and we would be well advised to withdraw our allegiance, join the Consumer Society, and eat, drink, and be as merry as possible before the bomb drops. At the beginning of my talk, I quoted Monsignor Eugene Cavain's opinion, that the contemporary catechetical movement has produced a generation of religious illiterates. I also quoted Cardinal Ratzinger's view that, since the Council, we have witnessed not a renewal, but a process of religious decadence. To what extent are these strictures applicable to our, to our own situation here in Britain? Might it not be that in this precious pearl set in this silver sea, this demi-paradise, we have been protected from the afflictions suffered by less happy nations. Are we, catechetically speaking, a happy breed? No, we most certainly are not. There may be parents here tonight who have protested to the teachers of their children 
at the travesty of Catholicism pervade in so many Catholic schools today under the guise of Christian doctrine. It is a pity that the penalties of the Trade Descriptions Act cannot be inflicted upon contemporary catechists. Parents who do complain are usually given the impression that they are theological illiterates, spiritual fascists, who should be interned on the Isle of Wight or some safe spot so that, they, so that they cannot impede the progress of the great renewal which, according to the National Pastoral Congress, is blossoming out all around us. I am reminded of the dictum of the historian Tacitus, Obi solitudinem faciant pacem appellant. When they create a wilderness, they call it peace. The catechetical commissars of Great Britain have created a spiritual wilderness in the souls of Catholic children and called it a renewal. A text from the Bible concerning millstones might be appropriately cited here, but I will not do so. I will try to be charitable. Well, I would like to give parents who have been castigated for their theological illiteracy a quotation they might like to use from a priest who most certainly is not a theological illiterate, Canon George Telford. Canon Telford was the chief religious inspector for this country and vice chairman on our official national catechetical commission. He is a very orthodox priest and he did all in his power to ensure that Catholic children were taught the Catholic faith. Sadly, he found that not only did he have no support whatsoever for this objective among his fellow inspectors and diocesan catechetical directors, but alas, no support from the bishops, the supreme pastors in each diocese, the men with a particular and awesome responsibility before God of ensuring that the children for whose faith they are responsible are taught that faith, as Pope John Paul II expressed it, not in mutilated, falsified, or diminished form, but whole and entire. Canon Telford resigned from his position as Vice Chairman and Secretary of our National Catechetical Commission precisely because it became clear to him that he could expect no support whatsoever from the bishops in his efforts to ensure that Catholic children were taught the Catholic faith. He sent every bishop a letter explaining the reasons for his resignation. When we bear in mind that Canon Telford is a priest who is uniquely qualified to assess the state of religious education in Catholic schools, I am sure you will agree that his conclusion is a most terrifying indictment both of the contemporary catechetical movement and, alas, the contemporary hierarchy. I wish that I had time to read you his entire resignation letter but it is well summed up with these concluding words. I would maintain, wrote Canon Telford, that modern catechetics is theologically corrupt and spiritually bankrupt. Its strictures and innovations are irrelevant and unmeaningful for the Catholic faith and can achieve nothing but its gradual dilution. The authentic renewal of catechetics will come not from them, but from the faithful. There would be some who would feel scandalized because I have criticized the bishops. They would maintain that public criticism of the hierarchy can never be justified. I can assure such people that this attitude finds little support in the authentic Catholic tradition. Listen to St. Thomas Aquinas. If the faith be in imminent peril, prelates ought to be accused by their subjects, even in public, 
Thus St. Paul, who was the subject of St. Peter, called him to task in public because of the impending danger of scandal concerning a point of faith. St. Peter himself set an example for for those who rule to the effect that if they ever stray from the straight path, they are not to feel that anyone is unworthy of correcting them, even if such a person be one of their subjects. Thus, the question we must ask ourselves is whether or not Canon Telford's rebuke to the bishops was justified. If what our children are being taught today in the generality of Catholic schools in England and Wales, and for that matter in Scotland and Ireland, is, as he claims, theologically corrupt and spiritually bankrupt, then indeed we should be scandalized. But scandalized not because Canon Telford has criticized the bishops, not because I have criticized the bishops, but because the bishops are prepared to remain passive while generations of theologically illiterate children emerge from the schools built by our fathers at enormous cost and sacrifice in the days when the faith mattered to the Catholics of this country. Let us follow the advice of Monsignor Cavain, which I read to you at the beginning of my talk. Let us make the presentation of the doctrine of original sin a touchstone of orthodoxy in religious education. I would like to issue a public challenge here tonight. I would like to challenge anyone to produce an official syllabus from a single diocese in this country in which the dogma of original sin is set out unambiguously in the terms it is transmitted to us by the magisterium of the church. I doubt very much whether a single syllabus could be produced. I will conclude my talk by thanking you for your patience and quoting just one more short passage from Pope John Paul II's apostolic exhortation, Catechesi Tridendi. The Holy Father demands that catechists must refuse to trouble the minds of children and young people with outlandish theories, useless questions and unproductive discussions, things that St. Paul often condemned in his pastoral letters. The most valuable gift that the church can offer to the world of our time is to form within it Christians who are confirmed in what is essential and who are humbly joyful in the faith. Let us pray for the intercession of our Blessed Mother, Immaculate Mary, our Queen preserved from the stain of original sin, that our bishops will have the humility to meditate upon the Pope's request and the courage to implement it. If our schools ceased producing theological illiterates and sent out children who are confirmed in what is essential and who are humbly joyful in the faith, what a blessing this would be both for the church and for our country. announcements to make, so I take this opportunity before we pass on to our discussion to let Michael's remarks sink in, to announce that the cassette recordings of the Bromley meeting, a very successful meeting at Bromley, organized by Pro Ecclesia and Pontifice, are now ready. And they may be ordered from CV Productions, whose representative is at the back. (laughs) 
The price is £6.30 for the set. It consists of two cassettes. And we have all the proceedings there. <coughs> we have to thank the members of the Bromley Profide Group too for the help they gave in the organisation of that meeting. Some of them are here and I would like their efforts to be recorded. Well now, original sin. Any comments? I think perhaps the discussion might well range over the effects and why it is that these modernists are so anxious to get rid of this doctrine. Michael has already pointed out one or two of these, these reasons and the effects of it. But um, the more you look into it, the more you see the almost diabolical aim of getting rid of this doctrine for their own devious reasons, the perfectibility of man, for instance. Anybody like to ask or contribute? We haven't got the lady who denigrated the Pope last time, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have her first if she's here. I'd like uh, two points, please. Uh, I'd like to hear how you feel, Mr. Davids, about um, the new rite of baptism, which um, might affect or, or not affect the view of original sin. And secondly, I read, I think in the Catholic Herald or universe, that to have a child baptized today is not a matter of just going there, getting it baptized. But parents are questioned whether or not they are real Catholic scaring people who more or less guarantee. Now, when I read this, I thought not only of the old rule, ex opera operata, but also that perhaps a child which would not be baptized might die, and that in truth, baptism is really independent on the well behavior of parents. Those two points I'd like to raise. So well, the, f the first point with regard to the new rite of baptism is, is actually very interesting indeed. So you know, people like myself who so have criticised the new rite of mass have been told that one shouldn't do so because it had been approved by the Pope. But a new rite of baptism came out which had been approved by the Pope, which while definitely valid, having the necessary matter and form, was theologically a great impoverishment on the previous rite. And a good number of important people put this point to the Pope who might well have signed it without ever having read it and when he examined it within a year or so of it coming out they had to have a revised rite of infant baptism in which I think there are several dozen amendments put to it directly by the Pope himself including a mention of the fact that baptism removes the stain of original sin and brings the child from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light I believe this new, that the new new right has now been implemented in this country. In America, they are still using the original defective right because the bishops said they spent a huge amount of money printing all the booklets and they weren't going to change them and have the amended version within a few years. So I'd say the new right of baptism, as amended by Pope Paul VI, does give adequate expression to Catholic teaching on baptism, although I would still consider it a great impoverishment uh, upon the earlier one. Now, the second one is regards, as, uh, 
what you said it was printed in the Catholic Herald. You see, this view represents the attitude of those who, who don't believe in original sin and, and don't consider baptism is necessary for salvation. But even before Vatican II, it, it, it was a practice, and I think a reasonable one, that parents who weren't prepared to make any effort or promised to make any effort at all to bring their children up as Catholics would not be able to have them baptized unless the child was in danger of death. This isn't an entirely new thing, but if the child was in danger of death, they would baptize it, because especially in countries like France, uh, people just did it perhaps for the occasion to have a party and, and had no intention whatsoever of uh, bringing the child up as a Catholic. And I could see here that it is putting a responsibility upon the parents that their child's salvation is imperiled. But I think the mentality of the people who do it now, it isn't to give the parents a dreadful warning, well, if, if, unless you're going to bring your child up as a Catholic, your child won't be baptised. It's because they think it doesn't particularly matter whether the child is baptised or not. Again, because uh, they, they don't believe in the doctrine of original sin as taught by the church. And... and this is very, very common now in France and in uh, and, and Holland. They're the, about the two worst countries, I think, where this practice is now pretty generally implemented. I'm not too satisfied with um, your explanation, Mr. Davis, really. I've had this query in my mind, like the gentleman next to me, for a long time, that if original sin which we all, we believe in, is, uh, is, is definitely there. Um, the child must be protected uh, to, get it off, uh, to get it out of the way. Therefore, your answer seems to, again, um, make the excuse, perhaps I've misinterpreted you, uh, that um, the child has got to be brought up a Catholic uh, in order for him to be baptised, because I, I've come across... Very, very good priests, very priests that I respect, who are still saying that unless the parents are going to bring that child up, I'm not going to baptise that child. I cannot, and I, I, for so long now, I cannot, I cannot weigh this up properly. I cannot understand this properly. That if we believe in original sin, and that's when I was young, it was essential the child was baptised very quickly. Uh, to protect him, why we should think that uh, if the child isn't going to be brought up, uh, why we still shouldn't protect him. And our, an argument is put that it puts a responsibility on the child because he becomes a Catholic and therefore he will commit uh, a terrible sin if he leaves the faith because he's a Catholic. That, that's an argument that's put. However, I may be vague about how I've put it, but I'm not happy about uh, it still being denied unless it's being certain that the child is going to be brought up a Catholic. Yes, I, I can certainly see the point you made there. I don't think I wasn't necessarily saying that I agreed with the, the practice of not uh, baptising the child. All I was saying that this, this was a, a, a practice that was considered acceptable before the Council. This isn't something totally new. Uh, I suppose it's because 
original sin has other dimensions as well as the, sorry, baptism has other dimensions as well as that is removing the stain of original sin. And, and it, so one can, I suppose we could end up making the same mistake, which is the modernists. The modernists tend to emphasize baptism as the reception into the <coughs> Catholic community and making a member of the church and ignore original sin. And we could perhaps go to the other extreme, think only of original sin and ignore the fact that it, 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 that it is reception into the membership of the church. And that, of course, is very, very important. That it makes you a follower of Christ and the temple of the Holy Ghost and a Catholic. And in a certain way, it, uh, see, to baptize someone who certainly will not become a member of that church and no one is going to even make an effort because the godparents and other parents are supposed to promise to make that effort. And in a way, they make the whole ceremony a mockery if they, if they re refuse to do so. And I think just to administer it indiscriminately to anyone could, could perhaps be to devalue it. It's, it's obviously a very difficult point what to do. As you say, if a child, if a child is baptised and dies before the age of reason, then that child is definitely going to go straight to heaven as long as he's baptised. If he isn't baptised, then there is a, a very, very strong possibility that that child will not uh, go to heaven. So it's, I'd be very interested to hear what anyone else you know, thought about it. Yes. I would like to clarify something about original sin. Um, we all say we're, we keep saying we're born in original sin, we're born with the stain of original sin on our souls. Now, would it be correct to say that what we inherit is rather than a stain? the absence of that sanctifying grace of that supernatural life which God bestowed upon the souls of our first parents enabling them to share his life in heaven and to see to, to share in the beatific vision and that baptism uh, is not exactly washing away a stain but restoring that supernatural life through the merits of our Lord's redemption. Is that correct? Is that, that is actually a very good uh, explanation because to a certain extent the, 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 the term sin is, is rather confusing and unfortunate. It, the original sin, as you say, it consists of the deprivation of grace which was caused by the free act of sin committed by the head of the whole race, who is Adam. And a person who is stained by original sin finds himself in imprisonment and in, in, in the slavery of the devil, whom Jesus called the prince of the world and St. Paul calls the god of this world, because his soul is deprived of sanctifying grace. And, of course, there's a weakening of human nature which in itself is not a personal sin or stain upon each individual. He is born with a weakened nature. So, original sin, if we're going to get down to the technical, theological aspect of it, we have to distinguish between actual sin and habitual sin. 
Actual sin is a malicious act by which a man deliberately alienates himself from God, whom he should love. Habitual sin is a certain persistence within us of the sinful deed. And the mystery, an original sin is a mystery, and the church doesn't actually have carefully defined teaching on the precise nature of original sin as it, as, it, as it affects us. You rather get a consensus of approved theologians. But, so, original sin is a mystery which we cannot fully understand, but the mystery of it is that there is this habitual sin within us, a, per, a persistence of a sin committed by the first sinner and is prolonged and continued in his descendants. The uh, second paragraph of Lumen Gentium, the decree, uh, the dogmatic constitution on the Church of Vatican II, says that uh, men have fallen in Adam. So this continuing alienation from God, which was originally deliberate in Adam, can only be called voluntary in his descendants because of this link with, with, with Adam's rebellion. So, original sin is a state of sin only in a very, very weak sense of the word in us. It includes no personal act of free will, and it subjectively, you could say, as it affects us, is the least of all sins because of the lack of voluntary adhesion on our part. Although objectively, because of what original sin constitutes. It, it's the greatest of all sins, greater probably than any, any mortal sin. So one could say probably the real stain of original sin is that all of us, of course, except for Our Lady, have for a period of time been in the power of Satan through not having had sanctifying grace within our souls. And that, that was why it was unthinkable that Our Lady, for any moment, should not have been within the kingdom of God and should have been within the power of Satan. So that never for one instant was she deprived of sanctifying grace. But, but as you said correctly, the real essence of original sin is a deprivation of sanctifying grace. And of course, this weakening of human nature, which I quoted you earlier, St. Paul, who said that the good that he wants to do, he doesn't do, and the evil that he wants to avoid is what he does. It's that same bit, isn't it? I don't really. Well, you see, our Lord said, unless you are born again, and the Holy Ghost, you shall not have life in you. Yes. Emphasizing that baptism does restore that supernatural life which was God's gift to our first parents and which was yes. restored to us by our Lord's sacrifice on Calvary. But I can never see quite why stain that word. Yes. Well, well, as I said, primarily you are, the, the, the main effect of original sin is the absence of sanctifying grace. Uh, and I suppose one could say even to, to have been within the kingdom of Satan, even involuntarily, for a period of time, so sort of has tainted, we, we, we are tainted by that, by that having happened. And, but they do, as I said, the, the consensus of reputable theologians is that there is this element of habitual sin within our natures, not of deriving from the, the actual sin of Adam, and this also is removed uh, 
by, by, the, by the waters of baptism. But if you actually really get down to a detailed examination of, of the, the exact theological nature of original sin, it does get very complex because theologians, have, there have been all sorts of theories uh, concerning it. When I was preparing for this talk the last few weeks, I've been reading it up in goodness knows how many books. And sometimes at the end of it, you feel more <laughs> confused than you were when you started. I heard a priest once describe it rather in a homely fashion as the effects of original sin is rather like defective vision. Baptism provides the spectacles to provide you with perfect sight, provided you put them on. I don't want to labour the point on infant baptism, but a while ago you said that um, uh, regarding parents who are not practising Catholics, baptism is often refused the newborn babe. Uh, but in an exception of death, imminent death, the baby is baptised. Surely an infant baby is always at risk of death. And isn't this sort of very contradictory? Shouldn't, uh, wouldn't it be sort of uh, feasible to accept the fact that, OK, baptise a child because, after all, the present policy suggests that he becomes the innocent victim until such a stage he is that, is that he is at that age of reason and therefore he can either accept or reject the faith with which he was baptised into. But at least he's on the first or the second rung of the ladder. Take that away from him and he is nothing. He doesn't stand the chance of entry into heaven, innocent though he is as a new babe. But the main point I'm getting at is a contradictory fact in your answer. Yes. Well, is it, it isn't exactly my answer. I, I'm no, saying that, that that was the practice even before the Second Vatican Council. That, that, that you see, parents are supposed to ask, or the godparents were supposed to ask for, for their children to become Catholics, and they wanted the gift of faith. And you see, I suppose parents, if they bring children into the world, they do have a responsibility for them, and. If, if the church is willing to give baptism to anybody, irrespective of whether they're going to make any effort or not, you know, I, I can see they would encourage people not to. But then I can see that from the point, if perhaps even one child went to hell as a result of this policy, uh, that the policy would have been very, very serious indeed. But it's the same, a, a similar, obviously not such a drastic uh, problem comes up to Catholic headmasters like Mr. Finnegan. Uh, you wonder whether or not to take the child non-practicing children into the school because they usually have a bad effect upon the, uh, upon the other children. Where you get a proportion of children from non-practicing families in, in, in a class, usually the, the other ones, their, their faith becomes weakened rather than that one becomes but then now and again you hear of a child of a non-practicing family who comes to school and ends up practically as a saint. But, uh, it, it's, no, to, uh, I, I don't think there is an easy solution to it. I think I'd be inclined to, to agree with you that probably the safer policy would be to baptize them. Well, no, no, there was. Uh, I was yes. When I was young, I thought the child was baptized immediately. Not understanding yeah. whether they were going to be brought out of the Catholic or not. Yeah. I'm 
Well, this is the, this is the contradiction, you see. These modernists, now they want people to be able to set aside their wife and bring their new wife married in a registry office to the communion rails. They don't want us to go to Mass every Sunday. They think that the Sunday thing is quite wrong. But if you take your child to baptism, well, you must come on a course of instruction to learn how we go to Mass every Sunday, to learn how we respect the institution of marriage. It's so contradictory. Anyway, there's a gentleman here waiting to and I think this will have to be the last. No, we'll have one more. Okay. Well, I to say is this the question that this lady here touched on involves a real difficulty. Last summer, I read an extremely interesting discourse given at a summer school, Catholic summer school, Oxford or Cambridge, in the late 1920s, I think, by a highly qualified speaker. All these talks were bound together in a volume. It's entitled Man. I want to see if they got it in the central library to check it up again. But the point the speaker brought out is this, you see. The church repeatedly uses the word sin, stain, guilt, as regards original sin. Now, we inherit our bodies from Adam, by physical procreation. So the sort of physical result of original sin, death, liability to pain, hunger, concupiscence and so on, that sort of thing. It's easy to understand how he's inherited that. But guilt, stain, sin is something which inheres in one's soul. Now, we don't inherit our souls from Adam. God creates each individual soul for each individual person. Now, how can one say that God creates something that is sinful? This is stain. You see, that's the difference. And he says, well, really, there's a misuse of words. The words sin and guilt and stain are not appropriate to describe original sin. Now, he gives an explanation of what original sin is, but it's a bit interesting, and I forgot what it is. I'll try to check it up again. <laughs> Last one. Over here. We're giving you some exercise tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what happens to the soul of the unbaptized child? Does the church still teach limbo, or is it, you know? So that, that's an interesting question. Yes, well, the, the church's teaching on limbo actually has never been modified. If, if I remember correctly, the last uh, statement on it was uh, around 1956, when they simply reiterated the traditional teaching on the necessity of baptism for salvation and, and that there, there's no guarantee of the salvation of unbaptized children. However, the, the existent, if I, I believe I'm correct in saying that the, the church has never taught de fide, it's not an absolute infallible dogma of faith that unbaptized children 
cannot get to heaven. Some theologians in the past have thought that perhaps in his mercy God would find some way. But the teaching of the Bible is that unless you're baptized again of water and the Holy Ghost, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. But that, of course, isn't absolute because we admit baptism of desire and baptism of blood. So exceptions can be made. And so, as it is a matter of such great importance, possibly involving the eternal salvation of a baby, the policy of the church has always been to take the safest course and to baptize them. But again, there has never been any modification whatsoever of the teaching on limbo. And as I said, in the case of people who say, well, doctrine has developed in the matter of original sin, ask for a teaching coming from the magisterium and you won't get one. And the same if people say that teaching on limbo has changed. Ask, well, where is there a statement by a pope or by the council that, that the teaching on limbo has changed? And you won't get one. It's just these trendy theologians. They, they say it's changed. And uh, usually the nuns and the silly people who follow them, they take it as if they're speaking for the magisterium. But there's definitely been no modification whatsoever of the teaching of the magisterium on the question of limbo. But it doesn't, that teaching... No, you don't hear it mentioned. You don't, you don't hear original sin mentioned. But uh, the teaching on limbo doesn't have the same de fide status as the teaching on original sin or the immaculate conception. I heard a lecture on this subject by Charles Davis just before he left the church. Now, give Charles Davis his due. When he was in the church, he never taught error, as far as I know. And uh, in this lecture, he dealt with this subject. And he says, the church's teaching on limbo has not changed. Modern theologians hold that an unbaptized baby goes to limbo and remains there until the end of the world. Now, at the end of the world, it takes place a general resurrection. And all of us, including unbaptized babies, get our bodies back at the general resurrection. Now, an unbaptized baby has not been planted in the likeness of Christ's death. That's St. Paul's expression for baptism. We've been planted in the likeness of his death. But they have been planted in the likeness of his resurrection. And by virtue of their sharing in our Lord's resurrection, they may then be admitted to heaven. So that's what he said. I just repeat it for what it's worth. I think there's something in it. Thank you very much. Well, we must draw the meeting to a close because we must be out of the hall by um, 9.30. One of the effects of the lack of respect for the doctrine of original sin in catechesis, which um, Michael has mentioned and touched upon, one of the more insidious effects is the teaching on sexuality, which is being given to our children on the understanding that they are they are perfect, perfect beings and that anything that they particularly feel inclined to do or nature has given them the inclination to do may be followed. And our next meeting, which will be the last of this session, 
Our next meeting will deal with this subject in catechesis and our speaker is Dr. John Rayo from New York. Those of you who heard him last year will remember that um, he is a very effective and amusing speaker and a very practiced speaker. He's an associate of the, the um, Dr. Mara, the speaker we had <coughs> from uh, Fordham University who did a tour of the country for Provide in 1981. And he was, in fact, Dr. Rare was recommended to us by Dr. Mara. If you like to do a little preparatory reading for next month's um, topic, you might like to take one of these um, leaflets, which is the Daylight Bulletin, edited by John Campbell, and it has a very important issue. This particular issue is devoted to what is called here sexology in Catholic schools. And if you feel that... Um, our next meeting might have been given to something more efficacious than I think after having read this, and it's only 20p over there, you will see that it's very necessary indeed. And fi finally, with the announcements, that is, if any, who's got the little blue book? If anybody hasn't put their name and address in that, could we please have your name and address so that we can tell you about our next session which will begin probably in October. It only remains for me to thank Michael again for his very informative, interesting and um, I would say exhaustive speech because he covers the subject and he really, like last time when he spoke about modernism, there was very little that we could ask him because he covers it so well. Uh, nevertheless, he's always welcome here. We are very grateful to him and I thank you all for coming too. We will finish with a prayer and if we could just turn it off now, John, I would like to ask you to...